answers and complain You always underestimate my brain Wednesday, everybody. It's not supposed to be wet Wednesday, but it's turning out that way. Another rainy day here in St. Louis, but we'll get through it. How are you? This is Bob Pro. Welcome to the best old-time radio podcast. This is uh, October the 28th, 2020. As we said, it's Wednesday, and on Wednesdays, we do a mystery. And we have a good one lined up, so why don't you settle down? Get your feet up, get yourself maybe something warm to drink or maybe something cold, a little snack. Let the cares of the day just drift away because we're going to be right back with an old-time radio mystery that you're really going to like. Mystery is an episode of Dragnet. Name of this one's The Big Cup. And a pretty interesting episode, and it's got a little bit of a surprise ending, so you might listen for that. Jack Webb was uh, really quite a guy. He was um, born in 1920 on April the 2nd, and he died in 1982. So he was 62 years old when he died. He was born John Randolph Jack Webb in Santa Monica, California. And he grew up in the poor section of Los Angeles in a rooming house that his mother ran. His father actually left the family just before he was born, so Jack Webb never knew his father. During World War II, he joined the U.S. Army Air Force, and he served as a crewman on a B-26 bomber. Hmm. After leaving the military, he worked on a radio show about a private detective, and that show, of course, we know today as Pat Novak for Hire. And then that was soon followed by more radio shows, Johnny Madero, Jeff Reagan Investigator, and Murder and Mr. Malone. When he had a small role in a feature film in 1948 entitled He Walked by Night, which was uh, sort of a docudrama, the style of the movie is what Webb patterned Dragnet after. And with the assistance of the L.A. police, Webb started Dragnet in 1949 as a radio show with actor Barton Yarborough playing uh, the role of his partner, Ben Romero. We know shortly uh, later, I think it was around 51 or 52, Yarborough died. And it wasn't long after that that Ben Alexander was introduced as his partner, Frank Smith, and, and remained that way. Uh, the television show was introduced in 1951. The original uh, few episodes had Barney Phillips and Herb Ellis as his partner. And I, don't, I didn't remember that until I researched this. In fact, I still don't remember it. 1952, Ben Alexander became uh, Friday's partner, and he remained there until the series ended in 1959. 
During the 50s, Webb continued to act in movies, but he really didn't get a, a good review from uh, critics, or really he didn't appeal to a, a mass audience until he made the movie in 1957 entitled The D.I., and he played a tough-as-nails marine drill instructor. In 1967, Webb produced and starred in a colorized version of Dragnet on television with Harry Morgan playing his partner. They still play those here in St. Louis, and they really don't hold up very well. The earlier versions were much better. The uh, later versions, especially coming in in the 60s, and it, it was sort of in the, uh, for lack of a better word, the hippie era, and Webb just demonized that whole uh, that whole culture. And I'm sure some of it was valid, but it really, to the point, it be, almost became cartoonish. Anyway, that's just my own personal opinion. If you go back and watch some of those, the ones with Harry Morgan, they just really didn't stand up like the earlier ones, or like particularly like the radio program. Let's see. After that ended, Webb produced a number of television shows, including Adam-12, The DA, O'Hara U.S. Treasury, we remember that one, and Emergency. Webb considered remaking Dragnet a third time, and he was going to uh, introduce it in 1983 with actor Kent McCord as his partner. But in December 1982, Webb was stricken with a sudden heart attack, and he died. Webb was given a funeral with full police honors, including a 17-gun salute, and also the uh, police helicopters flew uh, in, in the missing man formation. Very, very touching. At the time of the funeral, the uh, Los Angeles chief of police announced that Badge 714 would be forever retired, even though Webb had never served on the police department. In fact, the L.A. police uh, later named a police academy auditorium after Jack Webb. All right, here we go. From 19... What did I say? 1954, April the 9th. Here's Jack Webb as Sergeant Joe Friday in the Big Cup. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A howling dog causes a man to check his neighbor's house. He finds the brutally beaten body of an elderly woman. She's been killed by person or persons unknown. Your job? Investigate. Today, friends, you hear these three words everywhere. Chesterfields for me. The Chesterfield you smoke today is the best cigarette ever made best for you, because Chesterfield gives you proof of highest quality, low nicotine, the taste you want, the mildness you want. Chesterfield is best for you because it's tested and approved by 30 years of scientific tobacco research. Chesterfield is best for you because it has an established good record with smokers, proven by test after test. Yes, friends, the Chesterfield you smoke today is the best cigarette ever made for the taste you want, the mildness you want. Join the thousands now changing to Chesterfield. Always say, Chesterfield's for me. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, 
You will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, June 10th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Lorman. My name's Friday. I was on my way back in from the alley, and it was 7.26 p.m. when I got to 9782 Green Oak Drive. Front door. Did you find anything? No. No sign of anybody out back. Did you call the crime lab? Yeah, I talked to Lee's on the way. That's good. Call Hollywood Division, too. They're going to send out some more men to help us. Well, it's an outside chance. We might come up with something. Yeah. Whoever did it sure must have been wild, Joe. I don't think I ever saw a killing as brutal as this one. Well, that's pretty rough. Must have hit her a couple of dozen times. Look at there. Mm-hmm. See? Wristwatch is broken. Looks like she might have raised her arm to try and stop some of the blows. Yeah. Crystal smashed up pretty bad. It's hard to read. Yeah. Looks like 304, doesn't it? Uh-huh. That must have been the time. From what the neighbor says, that'd have to be this afternoon. No. Did you find anything that looks like the murder weapon? Nothing out in the open. Thought it'd be better if the crime lab checked the place first. How about the other rooms? Are they as bad as the one out front? Yeah, stuff's all scattered around. Drawers pulled out, contents thrown all over. Whoever it was sure wanted us to think it was robbery. Well, let's check the neighbor. Yeah, he's across the street. Said he wanted to go home and take something to help quiet him down. Must have been quite a shock for the old guy. Yeah. You want to tell Brian and Phillips where we'll be? Yeah. Phillips is out in the back. I saw him when I came in. I'll talk to Brian. All right. Ask him to let us know when Lee gets here, will you? Yeah. All right. Come on in. Thank you. Mr. Brody? Yeah, over here. Want to turn the lights on? I was just sitting here having a drink, trying to calm down a little. Yes, sir. Switch is there on the wall, sort of behind the whatnot. They have to kind of feel around. Yes, sir, I found it. Turned out the lights to help my head. Oh, me, oh, my, I got an awful headache. You don't happen to have a couple of aspirin on you, do you? No, sir, I'm sorry, I don't. Oh, well, I guess you don't mind much. I guess this will do just as good. What if you tell me just what happened here? Well, I'm glad to, uh... I want to help all I can, sure. I'd like to see you get the guy what did this to Ethel. Well, why do you think it was a man? Huh? Well, you said guy. What makes you think it was a man? Well, I didn't mean it like... You, you know, not special, but uh, come right down to it. Almost got to be a man. You can't imagine a woman doing a thing like that. At least no woman I ever knew. It's got to be a man. Come on in. Everybody come in. <laughs> Might as well have a convention, all the people coming in. It's my partner, Mr. Brody. Oh, another policeman, huh? Yes, sir. All set, Joe. They're going to call us when the crime lab crew gets here. All right. How are you, Mr. Brody? People all over the place. I never saw a crowd come so fast as when the sirens come in. Seemed like they were attached to mushrooms, just sprung up out of the ground. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Fine, yeah. wonder if you'd mind leaving that alone until we ask you a few questions. Oh, you mean before I have another drink? Yes, sir, if you would. Well, of course. Glad to oblige. I'll wait, I mean. You don't have to worry about me, though. Not old Earl Brody. I'll hold my liquor. He just bet. Old Earl's a regular tanker. Don't ever show on old Earl. Mm-hmm. Well, if you just tell us about finding the body. Well, I was out in the front watering the lawn. Always do it at the same time, you see. The hot sun burns it up. You don't water, you know. You've got to do that. 
Yes, sir. Well, that's what I was doing, wasn't alone. Yes, sir. Do you want to go on? You sure you fellas don't want a little snort, huh? Good no, no, no thanks, sir. Huh? No thanks. Yeah, well, all of a sudden I hear Nero making an awful fuss. Who's that? <laughs> that's a silly name, isn't it? Who is it? Little bitty old Peak. She called it Nero. Always seemed to me that if you're going to call a dog Nero, it should be a big dog. Yes, Nero's the dog. What happened then? Well, sir, first off, I didn't pay much attention to it. Just kept right on wandering the lawn, and old Nero kept it up. Kept right on yelling and howling. Finally, I figured there must be something wrong. Yes, sir, there must be with all that going on. So I turned off the water and wandered over, you know, check up. Yes, sir. Mr. Brody, about what time was this? I thought it was funny, Ethel not coming out and making Nero shut up. Oh, it was about six o'clock. Yeah, about six o'clock. Did you see anyone around the house when you went over? Not a soul, no, sir. There's nobody. So I went around back to the patio, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, there wasn't anybody there either. And I knocked at the door. All this time, little old Nero is still raising old Ned. He ain't stopped to breathe hardly. Yes, sir. Well, sir, when I knocked on the door, things swung right open. Wasn't locked, you know, so I, I called Ethel. I called a couple of times. I didn't get no answer. I couldn't see nothing, so door opens on a kind of little service porch. I didn't see a thing. Yes, sir. Then I went in. Walked right into the kitchen. There she was, lying on the floor. Stuff scattered all over, and little Nero sitting right beside her, just going crazy. You called the police right away, didn't you? Well, I run out of the house, all over to my place, and called the operator. I dialed no one, told him to send a policeman right away. Yeah, right away I called him. Had you seen Miss Lawrence at all today? Yeah, I saw her this noontime. She was out to get the mail, and we said, uh, hello. You know, just as cheerful like, like that. Well, what time did you say hello? Oh, I picked up the mail, went right back into the house, just like she didn't have no idea what was going to happen. Oh, about 1.30, mail comes in. Mm-hmm. Did you see anyone around her house this afternoon? Nobody, no, no. Oh, well, of course, now, I, I was out in the back most of the afternoon, you see, you see, out there working in the flowers, so I, I can't right out say that there wasn't anybody over there. I see. Do you know where we can get in touch with Mr. Lawrence? He works in the garage down on Pico, I think. I, I got the name of the place around someplace. I used to take my car down to him before him and Mrs. Lawrence got a divorce. How long have they been divorced? About three years, I guess. Well, I'm not really sure about that. How'd they get along, do you know? Any trouble between them? I guess there's some who'd say that he was right. I made the practice not to get involved in those things. Religion, politics, and marriage troubles... I don't, I don't uh, get meddled up in them. Oh, they, yeah, they fought all the time. Yeah. Has Mr. Lawrence been at his wife's house lately? Well, not that I've seen. I guess they, oh, see each other, but I, I understand what Ethel said. It was at the lawyer's. She used to try to tell me about it, but I just wouldn't listen. I don't believe in it. Religion, politics, marriage stuff, and all those things, etc., etc. Yes, sir. Alimony. They was always fighting about alimony, always. Do you know what the disagreements were about besides alimony? I'll tell you, mister. You better talk to Mr. Lawrence about that. He's the one to set you right on it. I go telling you, and I'm liable to say something wrong, you see, and that wouldn't be right, now, would it? You, you better talk to him. You talk to him. All right, sir, if you'll just give us the address, please. Sure, sure. I'll take a look at my checkbook, see if I can find it. You you talk to him. If you don't give you all the scoop, then, then maybe I can help you out a little. All right, Mr. Brudick, thank you. 
Got any more questions you've got to ask me right now? Well, if you don't feel well, sir, we can talk to you later. Well, it ain't that I don't feel good, just that I like another little snort, you know, kind of pick me up a little body and soul together, awful thing, oh, just awful. Well, there may be some more things we'll want to check with you oh, later tonight. A little old snort ain't going to do no harm. One thing, everybody says this old Earl can hold his liquor. Everybody says that. You can ask him, everybody. Mm-hmm. Hard the day goes by, somebody don't say that, well, if you'll get Mr. Lawrence's address for us, please. Right away, right away, sir. Wonder how you're going to take all this. All them years of battling, screaming at each other. Now they're over. He ain't going to have no more trouble because of her. No, that's not quite right, sir. Huh? He's liable to have a lot more. Earl Brudy looked through his desk and he found a canceled check bearing the address of the garage where the victim's husband was employed. While he was looking for the check stub, Frank and I interrogated him further on the relations between Ethel Lawrence and her husband. He refused to tell us any more than he had, explaining that if the answers we got from the husband weren't adequate, we could come back and see him. 6.48 p.m. We returned to the victim's house and we talked with Lieutenant Lee Jones. He told us that the crew from the crime lab had been unable to find the murder weapon, but that they had been able to lift several good fingerprints from the kitchen. He went on to say that these had been checked with those of the victim and they were not the same. Little other physical evidence was found in the house. However, an impression of a shoe had been found in the soft earth at the side of the house and a plaster cast had been made of it. We asked Lieutenant Jones to take the fingerprints of the neighbor who had found the body and check them with the impressions left in the victim's house. 9.46 p.m., the coroner arrived and removed the body and attached the paper seal to the front door. Frank and I went back to the office and checked the name of the victim and her husband through the record bureau. We found that Bernard Lawrence had been arrested four years previously on a wife-beating charge, but that he'd been released when his wife refused to prosecute. We checked the name Earl Brody. He had no record. 10.54 p.m., we drove over to the garage where the victim's husband was employed. The place was closed, but there was a card on the door giving an emergency address. Frank and I drove out to the house, a low, rambling, ranch-style building. The garage owner, Arnold Norton, met us at the door. Yeah? Mr. Norton? That's right. What can I do for you? Police officers. We'd like to talk to you. Yeah, I guess it's okay. I don't know what it's about, but I guess it's okay. What do you want? Might be better if we talked inside. You mind if I see your identification? No, sir. Here's my ID card. This is my partner, Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Uh-huh. Yeah, come in. Thank you. Thank you. Just a minute, I'll turn off the TV. We don't like to bother you, Mr. Norton. Shouldn't take us too long. Doesn't matter. It's just a fight movie. I've seen it before. I get a kick out of seeing him again. Mm-hmm. What is it you want to know? You have an employee named Bernard Lawrence working for you? Yeah, Barney's been with me for about seven years. Why? You have a home address for him? I suppose so. But can you tell me what this is all about? Just a routine investigation. We'd like to talk to him. Yeah, I'll write out the address for you. All right. You ever hear about Lawrence and his wife having any quarrels or disagreements? I'm not quite sure how I should answer that. What do you mean? I don't know why you're asking the question. It's a little rough to ask me to comment on the way Barney gets along with his wife. I don't want to lay anything on him. You've known him for quite a while, have you? Yeah, I told you he's been with me for seven years. Best carburetor man I've got. You must have heard him discussing his home life at one time or another, haven't you? I went through the same thing before, you know. I got myself right in the middle before. I don't want it to happen again. I don't understand. When they got the divorce, all the time lawyers coming around asking questions, trying to get me to take sides. I'm not going to do it. If Barney's trying to bring the thing up again, he should be the one to tell me, not have you fellas come around and do it. I'm not going to get in the middle again. I've known both of them for a long time. I think a lot of them. Ethel and Barney and me have been pretty close in the years. But I've had it. All the questions about how much Barney makes, what were his working hours, who'd he see, did he run around with any girls? No. I'm not going to answer any more questions. Well, this isn't a civil matter, Mr. Norton. 
This has nothing to do with divorce? No, sir. I'm not going to be called as a witness? We can't say to that, sir. Uh-huh. Well, you fellas are going about this routine thing makes me think that it's a lot more important than just a traffic ticket or anything like that. Well, it is. Did you see Lawrence today? You mean at the garage? Yes, sir. Yeah, he came to work at 8, just like he always does. He was there all day? 8 to 5, that's what he works. Does he have occasion to leave the garage at all during the day? I don't understand what you mean. Well, does he have to leave to go pick up parts, anything like that? Yeah, once in a while he does. We got a fellow who does that kind of thing, but when he's out on the call and Barney needs something fast, he maybe runs down the street and gets it. Did he leave the garage this afternoon? Yeah, he had to go down and pick up some rebuilds. You know what time he left? It'd be hard to pin it down to an exact time. I, I don't much keep tabs on Barney. He comes and goes as he pleases. Pretty important that we get an idea of when he was gone. Well, I can check it with the other boys in the shop. I should be able to find out when he left. I know he got back about 4.30, though. You're pretty sure about the time? Yeah, he came back and did a job on a rush one that we had, and then he took off at 5. How was he acting when he came back? What do you mean? Did he seem upset about anything? No, not particularly. He seemed pretty happy, though. Kept talking about what a beautiful day it was and how good he felt. Mm-hmm. You know, come right down to it, Barney was happier than he's been in some time. Just seemed like all his troubles were gone. Well, we know how you feel about this, Mr. Norton, but it's pretty important. Did you ever hear Mr. Lawrence threaten his wife? I'm going to have to take your word for it being pretty important, Mr. Friday. I've got no way of knowing, but if you guys get me in the middle of anything, I'm going to be pretty sore about it. Well, don't worry about that. Well, and to answer your question, Barney and Ethel didn't get along very well. I guess you knew that. Divorce and all, Ethel accusing Barney of running around, they had some pretty big arguments. Mm-hmm. Barney was pretty mad at the judgment he got, the alimony. He had to pay Ethel 150 a month, made him pretty sore. But the judge said to pay it or go to jail. Ethel would just as soon see him in jail. Mm-hmm. Barney used to talk to me about it. We'd stop down the street and have a beer when we closed up the shop. Barney would say there was only two ways he could get out of the alimony payments. Well, One was if Ethel got married again, Barney always said she was so mean that no sane man would have her. What about the other way? That was for her to die. Mm-hmm. I guess that was about the only threat he ever made so I could hear it. What's that? That he wouldn't mind helping her out. p.m. We drove over to the address we'd gotten for Bernard Lawrence. It was a modern apartment building in the Wilshire district. We rang the bell to his apartment, but we got no answer. Frank and I talked to the manager of the building, and he let us into the suspect's apartment. In a preliminary search of the place, we found nothing to tie the man in with his wife's death. However, from the clothes and the other personal effects in the place, we were reasonably sure that he'd returned to the apartment. The manager told us that Lawrence had come home after work, changed his clothes, and left, saying that he'd return later. We put in a call to the office and we told them where we were and we made arrangements to be relieved the next morning in the event the suspect hadn't returned. Frank and I settled down in our car, which was parked across the street from the apartment, to wait for Lawrence. At 1.30, Frank went down to the corner and called Faye to tell her he'd be a little late. He brought back a carton of hot coffee and some sandwiches. The stakeout continued. 2.30, still no sign of the suspect. 3.30, 4. At 5.30 a.m., the landlord came to the porch of the apartment house and yelled at us, indicating he wanted to tell us something. Frank went over to see him while I waited in the car. A couple of minutes later, Frank came running back. Joe? Joe? Yeah. Manager just got a call from Lawrence. What about? Lawrence wanted to have his stuff packed and sent down to the depot. Yeah. Said he's leaving town. a.m. We called the business office and had arrangements made to check the reservation lists on trains going east. We also set up stakeouts on the depots and on the airline terminals in the event the suspect changed his mind about taking the train. Two officers came out and relieved us at the apartment. The manager of the apartment was instructed to notify the officers on stakeout in the event he heard from Lawrence. 6.12 a.m. 
Frank and I drove back downtown. We went to the business office and got out a local and an APB on the suspect. We checked out of the office to go home and change our clothes, and at 8.46 a.m., we met back in the squad room. Well, you made it fast, huh, Joe? Yeah, carton of coffee there if you want some. No, thanks. I got something to eat on the way in. No. Any word? No, not yet. Lawrence still hasn't showed up at the apartment. There's nothing from the depot steakhouse. Oh, man, I'd sure like to get some sleep. Well, I'm with you there. You know, Faye sure sore. What about last night? Yeah. Had it all planned that we were going to a movie tonight. Always plans it on my day off. Yeah. You know, we have dinner and go down to the neighborhood. Kind of nice. She looks forward to it. Yeah. What's that got to do with last night? Well, this is my day off, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what it says in the schedule. And I'm working, right? Yeah. Well, I worked all last night, too. Huh? Yeah. Well, gonna be no movie tonight. I don't follow you. Well, I'm gonna sleep. As soon as I get home, I'm gonna climb right into the shower... Dry off, into bed. Gonna sleep the clock around. Yeah. That's why. Mm-hmm. We gotta talk to Skipper this morning. See in yet? Yeah, he's down at Chief Brown's office. Mm-hmm. You fill him in? Yeah, a little bit. He goes along with us. Mm-hmm. Well, let's check R and I. I want to look at that arrest report on Lawrence, see if any of his friends are listed. We might be able to get a lead on him. Better find out if he made that call he was supposed to have made when he was gone from work, huh? Yeah. The way it looks, he's still in town. Well, that doesn't do us a lot of good unless we know where. Well, we can go out and talk to the fellow that found the body. He might be able to come up with something. Better put a stake out on the garage where Lawrence worked, too. He might show up there. Right. I'll get Norton on the phone. Tell him to let us know if he hears anything. Good. You know, the whole thing looks pretty clean. All we got to do is put Lawrence at his wife's house this afternoon. We got it made. There's only one trouble. Yeah. We got to find him before we can put him there. After putting in the call to the garage where the suspect was employed and arranging for a stakeout on the place, Frank and I checked the arrest record that had been made out four years previously and obtained a list of his friends and relatives. We contacted each one of them, but they could give us no information on Lawrence. That morning, we met with Captain Lorman, and we went over the evidence with him. The fingerprints found at the scene of the murder had been eliminated when they were compared with those of the neighbor, Earl Brooding. Other physical evidence netted us nothing. The murder weapon still had not been found. The only piece of evidence that we had to attempt to identify the killer was the plaster cast of the footprint found by the side of the house. However, Lee Jones said that it would be of little use other than to identify the size of the shoe. It was a size 10 with a leather sole and a leather heel. There were no distinguishing marks on the impression. Two days went by and we still hadn't found Lawrence. We talked to the men he worked with, but none of them could supply us with any information as to his possible whereabouts. We checked the bars he was known to frequent without results. Apparently, the suspect had disappeared without a trace. On Saturday, June 14th, three days after the murder, Frank and I got back to the office after lunch. You want to check the book? Yeah. Where can I find Joe Friday? I'm him. I'm Barney Lawrence. Well, we've been looking for you. I want you to get off my back. Leave me alone. Do you mind telling us where you've been for the past three days? It's none of your business. The only reason I'm here now is I want to tell you to stop going around asking a lot of questions, causing me embarrassment. What do you mean by that? You know what I mean. I don't mind telling you I'm pretty sore about the things you've said behind my back. You probably didn't think I'd find out about him. But I did, and I'm telling you to stop. You ought to take it easy, Lawrence. You keep your nose out of this, cop. I'm talking to him. I got a few things for you, too, before I leave. Yeah? I don't think you're going to leave. What's that supposed to mean? Just what it sounded like. You're under arrest. For what? Suspicion of murder. You figured I killed Ethel? You look good for it. Then you better get a pair of glasses, cop. I'm walking out of here, and if you're smart, you won't try to stop me. I wouldn't try it, Lawrence. Lawrence? Now, hold it. If you haven't done anything wrong, you got nothing to worry about. Now, come on back here. You know something? What's that? I've always wanted to hit a cop. Come on, Lawrence. On your feet. Keep your hands off me, cop. Just keep your hands off me. All right, now sit down. Right here. Sit down. 
We're investigating a murder. Someone beat your wife to death. We're trying to find who did it. Well, it wasn't me. You got a funny way of showing it. The suspect was booked in at the main jail on suspicion of murder. Lawrence put in a call to his lawyer and arrangements were made to have him released on bond. Frank and I attempted to interrogate him before he was booked, but he refused to answer any questions we put to him. The following morning, we met with he and his lawyer. Again, we ran into the same stubborn silence. At 11.30 a.m., we met with Captain Lorman and Chief of Detective Thad Brown. We laid out the evidence we had. From all appearances, we had the guilty man in custody, but it might be difficult to prove in a court of law. The one thing we'd been unable to establish was Lawrence's presence in the house at the time of the murder. It was decided that without being able to prove this, we would have little chance of getting a complaint from the district attorney's office. Frank and I started re-questioning the neighbors. None of them could tell us any more than they already had. We re-questioned the man who'd found the body, Earl Brudig. He came up with the additional information that there had been a crew of carpenters working on a house the day of the killing. The building was located next door to him, directly across the street from the place where the murder had been committed. We questioned the carpenters. None of them could tell us anything. However, there was one man who had been working on the construction that we were unable to reach. It took us several days before we were able to find him. On Wednesday, June 18th, we got to his house at 7.30 a.m., just before he left for work. He asked us to talk to him in the kitchen of his home. I just having breakfast. Fix you guys something to eat? No, thanks, Mr. Hewitt. We don't want to take up much of your time here. Oh, don't worry about that. What's this about, anyway? Well, we understand that you were working on a job on Green Oak Drive on the 10th of June. Is that right? Let me think. Yeah, yeah, 9700 block. Yeah, I was there. Why? You worked there all day, did you? That's right. Mm-hmm. Left the place around uh, 5.30. Say this about that woman that was murdered? Yes, sir. You got the fellow did it? Well, we think we know where he is. You guys like a cup of coffee? Yeah, fine. We'll join you. Yeah, thanks. Either of you use sugar? No, no thanks. No thanks, sir. Don't see how you can drink coffee without it. Always use two spoons myself. That's good. Well, say, if you know who did the killing, how come he isn't in jail? We need a little more evidence before we can take him to court. That's why you're talking to me, huh? That's right. A couple things you might be able to straighten us out on. Why me? Well, we've talked to the other men in the crew. Seems like you're the only one left. Comes right back to me, huh? That's right. Yeah. What's the matter, Hewitt? Gotta sit down. What's wrong, Hewitt? What's the matter, you sick? Poison. Poison in the sugar. I've been expecting it. Right, get an ambulance. Quick. Yeah. What kind of poison, Hewitt? What kind? There's nothing you can do now. I know this is wrong, taking poison. I killed the old lady. I killed her. Ambulance on the way, Joe. No hurry. He's dead. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 23rd, an inquest was held in offices of the coroner in and for the county of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that inquest. (laughs) 
At the inquest, it was ruled that the suspect, Merle Patrick Hewitt, died of self-administered poison and his death was listed as a suicide. The victim's husband, Bernard Jerome Lawrence, was released from custody. Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to thank the editors of Time Magazine for their cover story of Jack Webb and Dragnet. That's Time Magazine, on your newsstands this Thursday. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Vic Rodman, Jack Crucian. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Watch an entirely different Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. John Cameron Swayze and the news next on the NBC Radio Network. I imagine the whole time you were listening to that episode, you were thinking to yourself, why is this name the Big Cup? Why? But it wasn't until that very last scene that it became evident that it was the the lethal cup of coffee. You know, sometimes you think that the writers, uh, when you have an ending like that, that the writers are taking an easy way out. But remember, these are all based on true stories. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. That was Dragnet, and that's uh, one of the favorites. I get a lot of mail. And it's quite obvious that uh, you listeners seem to enjoy Dragnet as your, your favorite in the uh, in the mystery category and we'll have more episodes of dragnet in the weeks ahead And that's going to kick things in the head for this Wednesday, October 28th in 2020. We are going to go out tonight with a couple of the top songs from 1954. Now, we've done a lot of 1954 over the last couple of months, but here's two you have not heard. Well, actually, here's one you have not heard, and here is one that you heard by another artist. Now, all of these songs made the top 100 list for the entire year of 1954. The first one was a very early recording by Petula Clark. And I had no idea that Petula Clark was recording that early. Actually, when I looked up at her history, she really had recordings from uh, the late 40s which surprised me. And it doesn't even sound like the Petula Clark 
that we came to know and love as we were teenagers growing up in the 60s. But uh, this first song is by Petula Clark, and the second song is by Rosemary Clooney, and it's probably, probably my favorite song by hers. If not the first, then maybe the second. But uh, I always loved this song when I was a kid, and it conjures up a lot of memories of uh, traveling in the car late at night uh, as we were going to visit my grandmother and my, my aunts and uncles and cousins up in the San Joaquin Valley. And it used to be like a, a four-hour drive to get up there, you know, but this was before they had major freeways, and we had to go over the old ridge route through the through the mountains there to get down into the, the San Joaquin Valley. But I remember laying in the back seat uh, on the floorboard. Did you ever have to lay on the floorboard when you were a kid? That's back when they used to have the big hump, you know, because the the the, the axle had to go, not the axle, what is it? The transmission, the, the thing that turns the wheel. What do you call that? The drive shaft. Thank you, Chester. <laughs> That's why I have Chester hang around. Uh, the drive shaft would uh, would create this big hump in the back seat, and my mother would, my sisters being older, got the lay lay on the seat. I lay on the floorboard, and we tried to use pillows to smooth out the back seat. At any rate, I can remember driving and listening to my parents in the front seat. It's late at night, very dark, and they're kind of flirting with one another, which is really fun to think about now. And I remember this song coming on the radio by Rosemary Clooney. And it wasn't until years later I appreciated what the song was about. But anyway, that's just my little story. So we're going to go out with a little Petula Clark, a little Rosemary Clooney, and that's it. This is Bob Bro, and I'm so glad you stopped by today. And I am so glad you met me. See you tomorrow with our old-time radio western. In the shoemaker shop, this refrain would never stop as he tapped away, working all the day. At his bench, there was he, just as busy as a bee, little time to lose with the boots and shoes. But his heart went pop inside the little shop when a lovely girl set him all a whirl. She had come to choose some pretty dancing shoes, and he heard her say, in a charming way, I want some shoes to set my feet a dancing, 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 dancing all the day. Shoes to set my feet a dancing, dancing, dancing all my cares away. Then he tapped and he stitched, for his fingers were bewitched, and he sewed a dream into every seam. Making shoes oh so neat Just like magic on her feet And he hoped she'd know That he loved her so But she danced, danced, danced As though she were in trance Like a spinning top All around the shop On her dainty feet She whirled into the street And he heard her say As she danced away Shoes to set my feet A dancing, 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 dancing all the day Shoes to set my feet A dancing, dancing Dancing all my cares away
shoes to set my feet a dancing, 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 dancing all the day. Shoes to set my feet a dancing, dancing, dancing all my cares away. Shoes to set my feet a dancing, dancing, dancing all my cares away. children. This old house once knew his wife. This old house was home and comfort as they fought the storms of life. This old house once rang with laughter. This old house heard many shouts. Now it trembles in the darkness when the lightning walks about. Ain't gonna need this house no longer. Ain't gonna need this house no more. Ain't got time to fix the shingles. Ain't got time to fix the floor. Ain't got time to fix the shingles, ain't got time to fix the floors, ain't got time to 